morning. How are you this morning? I brought these in case I pray for anyone. <laughs> I um. There's been one of the really beautiful things about coming in and going out and coming in and going out is that you feel the change more deeply. Someone says to me, my sons have grown, and I'm like, have they? (laughs) Parents, you know what it's like. They grow so slowly, and then one day you turn around and you recognize the growth, but you don't notice it moment by moment, day by day. And, and one of the real blessings about having been here for a number of years and leaving and coming back and leaving is that maybe the, the, the brutality of the picture, the confronting reality of the picture of change is more real. Does that make sense? And last time I was here, the Lord was still tearing down. Tearing down is uncomfortable. Tearing down is unsettling. Tearing down is that reality where you know that you're being dismantled, but there's absolutely no promise of what will be done after the dismantling. You don't know, you're just being dismantled, and it's uncomfortable. And Jesus comes to you and he takes your clothes off and you're standing naked in front of him. And you're like, holy cow, turn off the lights, please just turn off the lights. And he's like, I can't, I am the light. And you're like, I don't like being naked in front of you because you're perfectly holy and I'm not as I would be. I wish I was different. And then he starts reaching in and dismantling and tearing down. And my gosh, it's uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. And much of the church never enters into the fullness of what he offers because pride demands understanding to follow, but humility just follows. And in the dismantling, you've got no understanding You don't know where he's going, what he's doing. You know he's there, but the only assurance you have is of him. And when I was here last time, you guys were still in the dismantling, and you're not anymore. There has been a complete dismantling and a leveling. And I remember years ago, I I might have been David McCracken, talked about you guys and this thorn bush, and this picking apart of this thorn bush. And, yee, how's it going? And because these guys aren't perfect, some of us get scratched along the way. Like, because I'm not perfect, I scratch them along the way. But my value's not in them, my value's in Him. So I don't return the scratching. I'm not derailed by the scratching. Because I'm not following a man and a woman, I'm following Christ. I receive the gift, like I do from every single one of you. I receive who you are in Christ. I love what you prayed in prayer meeting. Loved it. It was so cool to just hear the meditation of your heart before him just scream out. And, and, and what Ollie prayed was, God, I thank you that it doesn't have to look like Greg. It doesn't have to look like Danny. It doesn't have to look like Johnny. But you've created us all to like have the same substance of life within us, but it comes flying out of us so vastly different. I've got a best mate in Auckland, and he's an orthopedic surgeon, and he's making tons of money. <laughs> Good friend to have, eh? And uh, when I landed in Auckland, I went straight to visit them. I love them so much. They're so precious to me. And I walked into their house, and they've got this massive house in the middle of Auckland. They've just come back from overseas. He was working overseas, and they've got two brand new cars, and 
I shared all this with them, and we're close enough that I feel at liberty to share it with you. But, but their environment, their reality is about as far down the other end of the scale as it could be from mine. I've got six sons, they've got three children. They've got five bedrooms and four bathrooms and three lounges and an office. And I've got three bedrooms and a bathroom and kind of a little space in the middle. And my house, for our eight, could fit inside their kitchen, dining, one lounge. And I walked in and do you know what I felt? You're here for them. You're here for them. They're giving you their yes, and this is where you have positioned them. And I felt exactly the same about walking into their house as I do when I walk into my house. Because it's not about what it looks like. It's the substance of life in you. And for too long, the methodology of the church has been, I have a vision that I want to build. And so I need to leverage your strength. And I need to tell you what it looks like for Christ to come flying out of you. Because I need to build my thing so I can stand before the Lord one day and say, look what I have built. That's been the message of the body of Christ for so long. And it's not supposed to be. It's just supposed to be this beautiful reality where the life in you gets discipled more fully freed within you and then it comes flying out of you and however he leads you to it. And that's the joy that I have here is that I feel like there's been this dismantling and in it. Can, can I... Can I encourage you to seek his face if you haven't already? <sighs> Where there's no sight, there's a lot of wiggle room for Satan to wound deeply. If you don't understand it, there's a lot of wiggle room for Satan to wound. And as a community, can I encourage you to seek his face deeply for what humility looks like? Because I know that there have been people that have left. Now, that's not your fault. Like I said before, I left as well, but it's a different spirit. (laughs) And can I encourage you as a community, because he, it, he's doing stuff all over the world. We are one body. The only lines of division in the body of Christ are the lines that you and I have drawn. He sees one church, one church, one church, one church, one body. And he's doing stuff all over the world. But not everywhere all over the world has the same yes that you have given to be dismantled in the confusion and the hurt and the wrestle. And I don't mean this. I mean the dismantling of this. That's why it feels so awful. And he did exactly the same thing to us in Africa. He took us over there and he dismantled me. Gosh, he dismantled me. And I I give thanks for my wife who so lovingly and gracefully just said yes to the journey even though it cost her big. Because marriage is not an obligation between one another. It's a blessing of the obligation before the Lord. It's not a commitment to one another. Ultimately, it's a commitment to him. It's a commitment that I will free you, my wife, in an ever-increasing measure unto the Lord. That's what marriage is. So I can leave South Africa. Look, every time I get on a plane, I have to contend with the reality that my family might not be alive when I get home. That is real. That's my world. And I get on a plane... I would never do it without Bex's blessing because I will not dishonor her. I'm not a lone ranger that just does whatever the heck I want because I have entered a covenant. I'm just not controlled by that covenant. There's no obligation in the covenant. There's obligation in the covenant. 
And in that obligation, there's a purity of love that wouldn't exist if I was obligated here. And I would never leave without her blessing. I said to her the morning that I was leaving, hey, baby, you know, we were going through some stuff and some challenges and, and um, with, with life over there, and, and it's sometimes just difficult. And, and I said to her, I don't have to go. I won't go. It's fine. Like, it's just a trip. I'll cancel it. No stress. Because I'm not bound to the trip. I'm bound to the person of Christ. So I'd never leave without her blessing. But I can be here in absolute peace that she was never mine to protect. She's not mine to govern. She's unto the Lord. And if I can't entrust my wife and my family unto the Lord, then I have no idea what worship is. So I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm so humbled by, you know, there are days that we have over there where what keeps us going is your abiding yes before him over our lives. And that doesn't have to look like anything. You know, this community has supported us in so many ways through, through encouragement and prayer, and, and we speak every so often as we feel led to, and incredible practical support, which is just blowing us away. And we're so grateful for that. But what, what, what is of most encouragement to us is the way that you sit before the Lord and you bless the yes of our lives before him. I don't need it here. I need it there. It's right here. It's good. But it's free. Does that make sense? So it's such a privilege to be here, such an honor to be here. Um, I just feel so, so blessed to come and see what he's doing and feel that change of season for you. And the real beautiful thing about the season of building, the only reason he takes away something is to dismantle it in flesh, to give it back in truth and spirit. He takes away the counterfeit to restore the real. That's what he does. And he's taken away the counterfeit of building the church and he's restoring the real of giving ourselves to being built. And he took away the sight that we thought we had of building the church. And now he's restoring sight to being built. So once there's humility, he can give it all. He can give you sight once there's humility because you don't rest on the sight, you rest in him. And I want to talk to you um, this morning about... Um, There's this thing in the kingdom where a town was living as they shouldn't, called Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord looked at it, and he went, no. And he rained fire down from heaven, and he consumed it all. Do you guys remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, um, uh, David, the Ark of the Covenant, has been in with the Philistines, and he wants to bring it back to Jerusalem, and it's in Israel. And he goes and he gets a procession, and the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was just the presence of the Lord. And I think it says he gathers 30,000, check the number, but a lot of people to come and to minister the presence of the Lord back to Jerusalem because David wants the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's a good desire. (laughs) It's a good thing. And they're going and they put it on this new cart and they start to move 
the Ark of the Covenant towards Jerusalem. And it says the oxen that were pulling the new cart stumbled. And as they stumbled, the Ark of the Covenant nearly fell off. And it says that the son of the high priest, Uzzah, reached out to steady the cart. And as he reached out to touch, the, the Lord struck him down for his irreverence and he died. Know that story? Okay, so I'm preaching, I'm mid-preach, I'm walking, I trip here over this guy's foot, and I'm about to fall, and these guys catch me, and I go, irreverence, die! Does that feel fair? They just helped, right? I, I can't remember if I've shared this before, but here, but I remember sitting with the Lord on it for years, like, well, that doesn't seem fair to me, why? Why, when all he did was just try and stop the presence of the Lord from falling, why did you kill him? What was up with that? And after sitting with him for a long time on it, one day the Lord said to me, I never stumble, I never fall. If I was getting off the cart, it's because I wanted off the cart and he wouldn't let me go where I wanted to go, so he had to die. And I went, oh. <laughs> now theologically, I believe that the Lord received Uzzah in because I am Uzzah every day. But there's this thing in the kingdom that you can't escape. That he is, if you want to walk in the fullness of the person of Christ, there is this reality that you cannot escape, that he is sovereign. He is king. And if you get on the wrong side of him, he just might rain fire down and consume you. If you tell his presence where to go and what to do, he just might strike you down for your irreverence and kill you. And you say, well, Johnny, that's Old Testament. We live under grace. Sure, but Ananias and Sapphira. They came and they stood an altar and they said, we sold our property and here is it all. And God went, that's not true. Sorry, die. Now, once again, theologically, I believe he received them unto himself because he's a good father. But he couldn't allow it to continue. And there's this thing that I want to talk to you about this morning called the fear of the Lord. I want to talk to you about the fear of the Lord because we talk about the love of God a whole lot. And that's right. The fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord go together. There's a beautiful scripture in Acts, and it says that the church thrived, were built up, and went on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's this, this two sides of the one coin. His love is essential, but there's this also this reality of, well, you are the sovereign king, and I breathe because you let me. I am because you are. I came to a service this morning because you did not destroy the world today. True story. The day will come like a thief in the night when the earth and its works will be consumed by fire and the heavens will pass away with a roar and there'll be new heavens and a new earth. And, and there's this reality that I am because he lets me. If he decides that time is done, no amount of haggling, no amount of argument, no amount of justification, no amount of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, you know that thing where you prove the presence of God out there? Apologetics. No amount of apologetics for how good you are should allow me to live. No, I'm into apologetics. Rock and roll. But we don't serve apologetics. We serve a king. And there's this reality that, that I am here today because he lets me be. Full stop. And so I want to talk to you about the fear of the Lord. Come with me to John chapter 11. It all started in our life. We uh, bought a house in South Africa recently. And... um. We found one, liked it, felt like God said we could buy it. So he put an offer in on it on a Friday. It was uh, actually when Bex was here. And uh, we put an offer in on the Friday. The guy verbally accepted our offer. We sent the paperwork in, signed the paperwork, and we were legally obligated until 5 p.m. the following Monday. Bex left for New Zealand on Sunday. 
4 p.m. on Monday, I get an email from a different land agent saying, I found your dream house. I know this is the one. She spent quite a bit of time with us, and she just kind of knew our hearts. Um, People in South Africa either step into our family or they step away from our family. There is no middle road. (laughs) They either come in or they they leave. Like, we either inspire hope or we inspire offense because we're different. We're black and we're white. We are confronting And I walk into a shopping center and I have my arm around my boys. It's not like I'm just caring for them, like I love them. And if you look at them, you will see that they love me. That's not like, oh, help them over there. That's like, uh, walls down, step forward. Is anyone from South Africa? Yay, you guys are amazing. You'll understand. You'll understand about some of the realities. You'll, You'll understand about some of the challenges. I got a message from Bex the other day. At our house, there's an alarm system. Everybody has an alarm system. And what the alarm system does is it sends beams out from on the outside of the house. It's not about the inside of the house, primarily. It's about the outside of the house. And it sends these beams out. And if anybody walks onto my grass or around my house, it will set off the beams, which sends an automatic signal to the security company that I pay to protect me. And they SWAT turns up at my house in 30 seconds. And they come, and if they see someone that doesn't belong at the house, they shoot on sight. And the first time our alarm went off in the middle of the night, <laughs> they turned up and I walked out, and I was like, hey, how you doing, guys? The alarm went off like it was that beam over there, and a the guy pulled his Glock and cocked it and pointed at me, and I was like, why? Pajamas, I live here. <laughs> but this is the reality we live in. And Beck sends me a message, and she says, I can't turn the alarm on. She's like, I have to choose whether I'm going to step back and build walls or I'm going to crush walls and step forward and trust my sovereign king. Now, sometimes he says, put the alarm on, but my trust is not in the alarm, my trust is him. Does that make sense? And there's this stripping and this, you know, I used to think people that talked about angels were kind of kooky. And then we got to South Africa and I was like, if they're real, they'd kind of be useful. Are they real? It's amazing how environment shifts stuff, eh? It's amazing how you don't need the truth. You're actually satisfied with a very small measure of truth until you're in a situation that demands full truth. People say God will never give you more than you can handle. What an absolute load of rubbish. He will intentionally lead you into far more than you can handle. Anyone? If it shown me my life, I would have been like, no, thank you. That's the calling for Greg's life. I'll stay in New Zealand. <laughs> I bless you. I bless you, brother. You can have it all. Take my house. Take my car. We'll take up offerings every week. And vice versa. And now that I'm in it, I'm like, wow, I'm just so grateful I know that you know me more than I know myself. It's and it's beautiful. So fear of the Lord. We bought this house. And uh, we're looking for a house. Put an offer on the first one. Agent emails me about the second one. This is your dream house. She entered our family. She knows us. Found your dream house. 5 p.m. on Monday, I call the agent of the first house, and the guy hadn't signed for some reason. He'd been away over the weekend, busy weekend, hadn't signed the papers, so we went out free. Tuesday morning, I dropped the kids off at ECD in school, at Kindy in school, and I drove down uh, to this house, and I picked up the land agent, and we drove to the house, and I walked in, and I was like, I hate this house. I don't want this house. The whole way driving there, I had this expectation. You know when you know that God's about to give you something and you get really excited because you think it's going to look like the gift that you want? (laughs) 
God's like, I want to give you something. And you're like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to look exactly like the picture I have in my head. I receive it. And I walked into this house and I went, I don't like it. And God says, buy it. And I say, but I have no vision for it. And he says, buy it. And I say, but I don't want it. And he says, buy it. And the longer I walked around the house, the more my eyes shifted from the presence of the Lord and ministering to the Lord, and the more my eyes shifted to the house. And my pride became more and more engaged in the situation, so that by the time I walked out of the house, I jumped on the phone and I called the land agent of the first place. And I said, hey, I've just had a look at this other place. Um, I don't really like it. I don't really want it. I think we're still in the market for the first place. I'm such a bad person. God tells me to buy it, and I want that one. And so the agent said, cool, I'll call the other owner. She calls me back five minutes later, and she's like, the other house is sold. It had been on the market for two years. And from 5 p.m. Monday, when I said wait, to 10 a.m. Tuesday, when I said I still want it, someone else looked at it, signed the papers, sent them to the guy, he signed the papers, it was gone. So I sent Bex an email saying, sorry, baby, I lost us our house. I found us another one. I think God's saying, buy it. I don't want it. I don't like it. What should I do? And my thought in sending the email was that she would say, oh, I'd really like to see it. Um, you know, just, just press pause on it or, you know, make some kind of conditional offer that we can get out of or just press pause or whatever. And then I was thinking I could go to the Lord and be like, well, I want to buy it, but Bex is saying no. <laughs> And Beck sends me an email back, I'm not there, I'm not supposed to be there. I bless you to follow your conviction before the Lord. See, that's marriage. I bless you to follow your conviction before the Lord. And for those of you that know Beck, she's a creative, she's artsy. She, like if I buy the wrong house, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> I just, I bless you, Johnny. I'm not there, I'm not supposed to be there. Do whatever seems right to him. Spend absolutely everything that we have because it's not ours anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need my qualification. It doesn't need my stamp of approval. Seek him. Do what you feel like is right. So I bought the house. Oh, so first of all, I said, God, it's 90 years old. I'm going to get a building inspection because that's practical wisdom. And I believe God is down with practical wisdom. We live in a practical world, but practical wisdom is not my king. And he said to me, I told you to buy it. Do you trust me or do you trust a builder? Whatever the inspection says is completely irrelevant. Buy the house. So I bought a 90-year-old house without a building inspection because Jesus told me to. People say to me, wow, like, I look at your life and you're such a good person. Non-Christians say this all the time when I'm on a plane or I tell them our story. They're like, wow, you guys are so inspiring. And I'm like, you cannot stand there. You can't have that. Either I'm a crazy man and I'm insane and I deserve to be locked up and put in an asylum or what I believe is truth. So you can't keep your feet over there saying you don't believe in Jesus but admire my life. Either condemn me to a mental assignment, asylum or walk into Jesus. There's no middle road. And so I said, the Lord of Cow, buy the house. And, and I bought the house eventually. <laughs> I realized along the way that I had a greater fear of losing what I wanted than him losing what he wanted. I had a greater fear of Johnny than I had a fear of the Lord. I had a greater fear of man, the systems of the world, the approval of the builder to buy the house then I did a fear of the Lord and the approval of the Lord. And he started to take me on this journey of the fear of the Lord, and I want to share that with you this morning. Um, have you ever heard 
Who would say they walk in the fear of the Lord? Just out of interest. It's very real to you. A few people. Awesome. It's often the way. When I share about it, it's like, well, I know that it's in the word. This is what the fear of the Lord actually does. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord leads to life. Have you ever been in that place where you're like, I don't have the substance of life, give me life? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is both the beginning of wisdom and it is the substance of wisdom. It is the doorway to wisdom and it is the room of wisdom. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, God, I need your wisdom. I need your wisdom, God, I need your wisdom. And he's like, well, I can't pour it out because I need to establish this thing of the fear of the Lord in your life. And sometimes we we spend ages wrestling around a decision and we never get an answer because we're asking him for wisdom, but we're not willing to yield to this thing called the fear of the Lord where you let me breathe, you let me breathe, you let me breathe. It says that the fear of the Lord is clean. Sometimes I feel so dirty. Might just be me. What if... What if I took a video of your life, your thoughts, the worst things you've ever done, that no one knows, the things that are hidden, guys, the stuff that sometimes runs through our heads, women, sometimes the insecurity and therefore the criticism towards another. What if I could capture all of that and then one by one we put the worst, darkest secrets of our lives on this screen for everybody to watch? Who would want to stay Anyone? I wouldn't. Why? Because we're more conditioned to performance than we are. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you want to be free of all of that dirt, fear of the Lord. It is clean. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and perverse speech. It prolongs life. It is the strong confidence, refuge, and it is a fountain of life. It's the instruction for wisdom. It keeps us away from evil. It leads to life and rest. How can fear lead to rest? It does. Somehow. It brings reward. Specifically riches, honor, and life. It is our delight. It is our treasure. It is the vehicle for the body and it brings us before the king. That's what scripture says the fear of the Lord is. And I said to the Lord, I don't get it. I've heard people talk about fear like, I heard someone preach on it once, and they were like, the fear of the Lord is like a healthy fear. Like when you're on the edge of a cliff and you look down, it's the fear of falling off that keeps you back and therefore preserves your life. And I'm like, okay, I follow the logic. But it, it falls over when the truth is if I fall into the Lord, I'm better than if I stay on the top of the cliff. The fear of the Lord is not supposed to keep me away from the Lord. It's supposed to bring me more deeply into who he is. So what is the fear of the Lord? The analogy isn't correct. And I was praying about it, and God gave me this, this picture. And I've got a friend in Auckland. His name's Tavita, and he's absolutely tanked. He's massive. He's Samoan. His head's up here somewhere, and his arms are like four times my thighs. And he's just huge. He's absolutely huge. And he's got the softest heart. He's incredible. Amazing, beautiful man. And anyway, we used to go down the beach to play rugby uh, after services. And when you were in the car... The sole goal, the only thing you were thinking from the building to the beach was how do I get on Tavita's team? <laughs> that was the goal of the game. And, and you would catch the ball and you would pass it to Tavita and we score! <laughs> and you catch the ball, you pass it to Tavita and we score! And then one day I was on his team and I had to change teams because someone on the other team left. 
and I was a weed, and my mum wouldn't let me play rugby because she thought I'd get hurt, and it was probably a justified fear. And I had to suddenly set myself against Tavita, and he came running, and I went in for a tackle, and I got absolutely hammered, and I had to leave crying. I wasn't crying, but I was. Uh, if, <laughs> if I'd been secure in who I was, I would have cried. But because I was trying to be strong before the boys, I didn't. Man, it hurt. This is the fear of the Lord. You've put me on your team. Here is my life. Put it in your hands. And I am terrified of setting myself against you. If you want to go that way, man, I'll get in behind and you lead us that way. I don't mind if it's the way that I think the try line is. Have you had that in your life? God, run that way. And he starts running that way. They put the try lines there, God. Not in my game, it's that way. Choose whether you want to set yourself against me. There is no passivity. You walk that way, you set yourself against the king. You put yourself here and you say, I will not let you take me there. And then we wonder why we end up broken and smashed and things aren't great. That's the fear of the Lord. Here is my life in your hands. Go God. (laughs) We score for your glory. Because I didn't break through. John chapter 11. Verse 30. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha send for Jesus. He says, I'm coming. Then he waits where he is, which is pretty common of him. He says, I can't come now because there's greater glory to be revealed. (sighs) Like, we do have to decide if we want full glory. Or just tastes of glory. Because sometimes if you just want a taste of glory, he'll in grace come now. But other times if we really hunger, if we're like Moses and we're like, show me your glory, the Lord will say, I am not coming to free you of that situation right now. Live with a dying man for a little bit longer because if I wait, there's greater glory to be revealed. We have to decide what we want. Full glory, little bits of glory, and his grace is enough to carry us into both. He's so incredible but I want his full glory. So if he chooses to wait and not come to me immediately, that's his prerogative. He is still good. Verse 30, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with, him, with her in the house and consoling her, Lazarus has died. When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever done that? I have. I did it growing up all the time. My father died when I was three, and I allowed a root of bitterness to come into my heart because, Lord, if you had have been there, my father would not have died. It's just a symptom of I think I am king of my own life again. I know you're king, but I spend my life trying to pull you down to my level so that I can be king also. If you had have come, my father would not have died and I would not be suffering in this pain that I am. The the arrogance of it. And yet we don't see it as arrogance because it's just so within our flesh, our pride and our fear and our unbelief. It's not who we are in Christ, but it's, it's just there. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. 
and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. So Mary and Martha sent for Jesus. He's like, I'm not coming, chill, I'll be there in a bit. He comes three days later, Lazarus has died. He walks in, he sees them weeping, and he's deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And he says, where did you lay Lazarus? And they say, come see. And Jesus weeps. Now I've heard that scripture preached on a number of times, and people have said that Jesus saw the compassion, he had compassion towards Mary and Martha, he saw their pain, and he wept with them. And I believe there's, there's an element of truth in that. I, I've heard it preached that Jesus had such a love for Lazarus that he himself was grieving the loss of a person, and so he wept. And, and I believe there's some truth in that, but I don't believe it's ultimately why he wept. I believe that why Jesus wept is because he was here, and they were there, And they sent for him. And he said, I will come. But then when Lazarus died, they wrapped his body and they put him in a tomb. If Jesus is coming, why would you put the body in the tomb? If your faith is in the life of Christ, why would you put a dead person in the tomb? You just leave him on the couch because Jesus is coming. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you fear death more than you fear me. So when death happens, you listen to death. You don't listen to me. I told you I was coming. Why didn't you just leave him on the couch? Now I've got to roll away the stone and get all the grave. I'm going to raise him from the dead, but leave him on the couch. And there's this thing about the fear of the Lord. Um, you guys are blessed. If you have a fire, like you open up your, your phone book and like you go to F and there's like fire department and you call it and they come. I don't have that. I don't have a phone book where I live. If there was a phone book, it wouldn't have fire department in it because there is no fire department. If there's a fire in where I live, if the fire's coming from there towards here, there's two ways we deal with it. One, we get as many people as we can and we get beaters. And they're big, long, kind of like a broom handle with a big rubber flap on the end and you follow the fire going bam, 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 and it's exhausting, and it's smoky, and what you're trying to do is put out the fire faster than it is going forward. So if you can do it fast enough and long enough, you will eventually catch the fire, and you'll be able to put it out from behind, because you can't take it head on, you'll die. The fire just goes around you, and then you're trapped in the middle of the fire. That's the one way we deal with it. The other way we deal with it, if there's time and we can see where it's going, is we go around the fire. If the fire's there coming this way, we go around the fire, we come to here, and we get slashes and we cut the grass. We cut the grass, we cut the grass, and we cut a big long line of grass, several metres long, for however wide the fire is. And then we sweep up the grass, and then we chuck it back on this side of the cut grass, and we light it here. And it's called back burning. The fire starts here, and it can't go this way because the grass has been cut. Even if the wind's blowing this way, it will slowly go this way. And it means that when this fire arrives, there's no grass to burn, and it just has to go out. That's how the fear of the Lord works in your life. If you give yourself to cultivating the fear of the Lord, the fear of man will come towards you and it will get close to your heart and you'll go, you can't reach me because I've backburned with the fear of the Lord. I fear the Lord more deeply than I fear man and so the fire of man has to go out. It cannot survive. That's how the fear of the Lord works. It frees you from every other fear. See, we think it's the love of God that frees us from the spirit of fear, but it's not. It's the pure fear of the Lord that frees us from the spirit of fear. And the fear of the Lord and the spirit of fear are two different things. 
And so you're living your life and a colleague says to you, and you stand there and you watch the fire of accusation go out in front of your eyes because you fear the Lord more deeply than you fear their words. A family member says something critical to you and you stand there in absolute peace. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to fight back because there's no grass to burn because the Lord already has your heart. A husband says to you, you're such a bad wife. Da, 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 da. And the, the words don't hit your heart because you've already given your heart to the fear of the Lord and that's not who he says you is. You are. Sani bonani, good Sani. Is that better? Sorry, I'm a little bit African now. My England is questionable. Mary and Martha were more tuned into the fear of death than they were the fear of the Lord. So they put Lazarus in the grave. Come with me to Matthew chapter 13. The other day, um, I was driving home at night. I had all the, the boys with me in the car. And um, we came around the corner. Uh, and, and it wasn't far, maybe twice the distance from here to the far wall of the building. Came around the corner and there were about 400 angry people in the middle of the road. And they were holding machetes and clubs and they dragged wood across the road and put piles of tyres across the road and had set it all alight. And we came round the corner. I was like laughing and joking with the boys. And we were having a good time, and I was focusing on the driving, but not as much as I would have been if I'd known there was a riot, you know, 100 metres around the corner. And I was laughing with the boys, and I came round the corner, and I sort of glanced as going around the corner, and then we went further, and I looked back, and all of a sudden, there's hundreds of people running towards our truck, and they're picking up stones, and they start throwing stones, and my my ute is old, and the gearbox like isn't quite. It's it's a little bit. You got to feel your way through it. And I went to do a U-turn, and the road wasn't wide enough, so I'm having to like do a three-point turn <laughs> with an unhelpful gearbox as a crowd of angry people come running towards us, throwing rocks at the truck and screaming. And I've got a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a 14, a 15, a 16, and an 18-year-old in the car. And I wasn't... I just don't care. Like, I just don't care anymore. To live as Christ, to die as gain, I choose to live my, give my life away. Like, if I have to protect myself from that, I can't live in that country. I can't say yes to the call of God. You know, and, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, one day your hands will stretch out east to west. In other words, you're going to be crucified. And Peter's like, what about John? <laughs> you had that before? And Jesus is like, don't worry about John. You inherit the same stuff. It's just a different road. It's the same substance. It's just a different methodology Chill out. And, and honestly, if I had to protect my life, if I was in fear of losing my life, if I was in fear of my wife losing her life, if I was in fear of my sons losing their lives, I would be doing everything I can do to adopt the boys legally and get back to New Zealand and get out of there. That would be my sole focus. 
And what that means is I've drawn a box around who God is and what he can't do because I only want him to bless my perspective. And if he's going to lead me into more, he has to smash my box with me in it. And so I have this fear of the Lord. I drive around the corner, and man, it's practical. And I hit a fear, and the fear comes running towards me. And it's like, it's okay, it's been backburned. Like, if you kill me, you kill me. (laughs) So be it. I'm okay with it. I'm not trying to build my life. I've given myself to be built. There is now such a strong definition for me between building and built. Building is the deception and the demonic. Being built is the authentic and the real. I've given myself to being built. So if you build me by people running up my truck, well, you build me. Yeah, Jesus. If you build me by them coming up and patting me on the head and saying, you're doing awesome, here's a cow, here's a free gift, um, awesome. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter anymore. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. I love how it says that, you know, like, you know how often we want Jesus to move on? And he's like, I haven't finished talking yet. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed. So often I'm like, okay, God, we've been hearing about this for so long. You've been talking about this. You know, every time I ask him what he's doing in my life for five years, he says, I'm teaching you peace. Five years. And I can't even preach on peace yet. I don't even really know what it is. There's a substance that's growing. Five years I'm teaching you peace. (laughs) When he's finished those parables, he'll move on. Verse 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Great question. Verse 55, bad question. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. The people that we are most familiar with are the people that get the worst from us. There's this demonic thing called familiarity with the Lord where because he presences himself with us all the time in deception, we have equated his presence with his approval, and we become satisfied with his presence and familiar with his presence, even when he's not happy with us. I presence myself with my sons all the time in a spirit of joy, even when they're behaving like punks. I'm not pleased with them, but I presence myself with them. I give them who I am. We talk about the presence of the Lord like it's this massive thing. And it is. It's phenomenal. But he said he would never leave us or forsake us even until the end. And so if the value is his presence, I'm pursuing something that he's already given. I must pursue the the nuance of his heart in his presence. Because some of my sons come into a circumstance and they look at me and they're like, Dad's in joy but I I want to see his heart and I can see that in his heart who I am right now is not who he wants me to be and therefore I will change. And other sons walk in and go, dad's there, he's cooking muffins, can I have one? They don't care about my heart. They're not looking for the substance of who I am and they're not looking to reveal the substance of who they are. They're looking to use my presence to leverage what they can get from it. It's not his presence. It's the nuance of his heart. 
It's both knowing and being known by. Both. Bad question. Familiarity. I think I might have read this in the night thing last time I was there, but it, it remains one of the the deep and profound moments of my life. Um, when we went to Africa, God started to unlock the miraculous to us. And um, it was really beautiful because we, we need him. Um, I nearly died a couple of years ago and, and the doctor said to my wife, do you have medical insurance? And my wife said, no. And the doctor said, well, you either need to raise 10 thousand New Zealand dollars to put him into ICU or you can take him home and hope. And we didn't have ten thousand dollars and we didn't feel like God was saying reach out for ten thousand dollars. Well she didn't. I was a bit blotto. I wasn't part of the conversation. She was so she took me home and she put me to bed and she prayed. We need his presence. We need his heart expressed over us in the miraculous. But then I became familiar with it. It became normal because I had no fear of the Lord in it. It became this thing that I was seeking to control and this thing that I was seeking to use as I perceived it was needed. Instead of walking around going, I only do what I see the Father doing. If that means passing a dead man, I pass a dead man. If that means giving my life for one who is about to die, I give my life for one who is about to die. But I'm not looking here, I'm looking here all that time. And then this happened. This is written by Bex, and, and I love reading it because she expresses it so beautifully, far more than, than I could. Sorry for those of you that have heard it, but I think it's worth hearing twice. About a year ago, a little whisper started in my soul about a little girl named Hope. In September, she entered our world, and I was so not ready for her, overwhelmed and sleep-deprived and not ready for any more stretch marks on our family heart. Beautiful, fragile, born in a brothel after only six months in her tummy mummy, and abandoned before she reached full term, hope. When you look at pain and suffering, if the meditation of your heart, you've got to feel it, no doubt. But after feeling it, if the meditation of your heart is not hope, then you do not know, call him Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, God saves, he saves, heals, delivers. When we engage with the world, the meditation of our heart must be hope, not pain. That's how Father engages. I am Savior. I am healer. I am deliverer. As soon as you say, yes, I have everything you need, hope. And if you carry the weight of the pain and the suffering, it will break you. And you will go into human strength and human works, which cannot glorify the Lord. And you just end up burnt out and broken and spit out. Hope. Cared for by a friend who knew her mother while she desperately tried to track her down. And God waited patiently for me to speak up. When I finally did speak up in a tentative whisper, she was put in my arms and I brought her home and bundled her in pink. And by the time we went to bed that night, every single member of our family had quite mysteriously fallen in love. And it seemed like every hour that I woke up to her little cries, my heart enlarged and enlarged and enlarged beyond anything I might have imagined 24 hours earlier, until the fear of stretch marks had been completely overshadowed by something wonderful, something full of wonder. The next day we took her to the clinic for what looked like a yeast infection. She was admitted to hospital that night. Three days later she was fighting for her every breath while we were fighting for someone to please do something. She was eventually diagnosed with full-blown AIDS, her immune system depleted to the point of being unable to fight off whatever other minor infections she might have had. 
For the next 10 days, I drove into the city to hold her hand and squat by her bed and sing hope over her every chance I got. The little boys prayed baby hope hope prayers and sent me off with little love messages and Swanky searched the scriptures for hope's verse. And every day the nurses turned her oxygen off and chased me out with foul scowls and reminded me that only the real mothers are supposed to be here. In the meantime, my truly wonderful friend invested hours into chasing the real mother who ran and ran and kept on running, leaving this tiny treasure to the care of God in much the same way she had already done with two other babies before. And I prayed for grace and for my own not-ready heart because I have been living this for long enough to know that in one way or another, every she is also me. See, When I encounter someone in the dirt, it's so natural for me to sit in the dirt because that's where he finds me. The Western world doesn't like sitting in the dirt. The Western world has a value for strength. The Western world has a value for I will give to help you in your scenario so you can be like me. Instead of saying I will join you in the dirt and together we will look at the Lord and see what he wants to do. I don't care if I'm wearing a jacket and nice jeans because they're only clothes anyway. You'll find me in the dirt king because that's where you found me and that's where you'll find me today. So when my wife is praying for this mother who gave birth in a brothel and didn't follow through with simple medication so that her baby would not contract HIV and AIDS. My wife is like, I am her. Her need is my need. It just came out, I was preaching in a service the other day, and I said to all the men, men, do you know the difference between a rapist and me is the grace of God? I said, do you know the difference between a rapist and you is the grace of God? Someone got really offended with me. Well, true story. God doesn't look at sin and grade it and go, oh, you're very bad and you're kind of okay. He just looks and says, for all have fallen short of the intention of the glory of God. The beauty of that scripture is that he intends us to be in the glory of God. We stop it for all have fallen short and we condemn the sin. Instead of understanding that I am, I was, no longer, but I was, therefore I and the rapist are one and the same, which allows me to exercise compassion and do whatever the Lord whispers into my heart without boundaries concerning that situation. If my wife got raped, I would ask the Lord, do I report it or do I bring the man into my home? With her permission, of course. Do I report it to the police? Look, I get justice. I get the need for it. But there is a higher authority and a higher justice than the justice of this land. And I understand that the difference between me and him is the grace of God. So how can I extend the grace of God over him? With my wife's permission, of course. Understand? And I prayed for grace and for this mother and for my own not ready heart because I have been living this for long enough to know that in one way or another every she is also me. And I drove home every day through tears for all the burnt and broken and seeping bandaged tired-eyed children in the hospital ward. And for hope and she and me, I cut brightly coloured spring blossoms from the trees in our garden. And every day I pruned and I prayed that this little hope girl would be the kind of seed that we would get to watch grow like those spring blossoms and not the kind that must fall in order to bear its fruit. Tending hope while contending with hopelessness. Tending life while contending with death. And all the while gaining greater glimpses of a greater glory garden. When hope took her last earthly breath, the nurses didn't call us. 
By the time we got there, she had already been moved, set aside for the other mother who had been unwilling to visit. I didn't get to wrap her or kiss her goodbye. Everyone around us was busy stopping for other ones, so our family didn't get to celebrate Hope's life with anyone else that week. But we did get to usher into the arms of love and call her beautiful. And we did get to lay our hearts in the same hands that now hold hers. And we do get to hold on to hope eternal in the midst of a world that is so not worthy of his best, but often gets it anyway. During my hours of hope gazing, the verse that kept coming to me was Psalm 45. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many many colored robes she has led to the king. A few nights after she passed into life. Gosh, we're so... Can I unplug this? Earth. Eternity. It just goes on. It's coiled here, but it keeps going. And my lens is this. People say we don't live from earth to heaven, we live from heaven to earth. I don't believe that anymore. I think we live from the eternal reality unto the eternal reality. That's the truth. From eternity unto eternity. Well, is it from or is it unto? Yes. (laughs) She passed into life. Did it hurt? Yes. But she passed into life. I was standing in the kitchen with our Walter doing dishes. Out of nowhere, he says, Mama, I can see hope. She's with Jesus in the garden and she looks like a princess. He goes on to describe her crowned and clothed in garments of gold. She's beautiful, he says, and I smile big. See, the difference between me and Bex in that scenario was I had become familiar with the power of God and so I declared the power of God over a little life named Hope and I was broken when it didn't come true. In my perspective, in my lens, the way I perceived it should, for the glory of Johnny. All in blindness, but all of that nonetheless. And my wife is writing this, and I am desperately trying not to think about it, not to feel it, because I know if I do, it will break me. And we entered this hospital room, and instead of going, Where do you get all this wisdom and this miraculous power from? I went, and you're the king who healed there, and you're the king who healed there, and you're the king who healed there, and I declare your healing here. Instead of saying, my king, I want to pass you the ball. What are you doing? I moved from familiarity, not fear. Come here, 2 Corinthians 5.11, nearly done. I love you guys. You're amazing. It's so special to be here. Thank you for having me. Like Greg said, you guys sent us. And we continue. um, Who was it that had that beautiful picture on about the hand, the blood? Nick. Where's Nick? Is he here? Nick had a beautiful picture um, on Friday night of how there's a body and the body sent Bex and I as a hand and 
but it's connected by the arm and the blood flows through the hand and then flows back to the body and there's mutual cost and mutual blessing in both. I thought, what a beautiful picture and that's how we feel, so thank you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. Because we value performance, we have to measure performance. To feel good about ourselves in the body of Christ, if we're going to build, we have to measure that performance so that we can say we're doing a good job for God. So we have to measure how many people get saved and celebrate the number of salvations, whereas the truth of the kingdom is how do you know? <laughs> like I can give an altar call and 10 people can go, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus, but I don't know if they're saved. I can't measure that. I'm not judge. But the Western world, all around the world, sits down on the throne of judge and goes, aren't we doing great? Here I am as judge. You got saved. You got saved. You got saved. You got saved. That's four more to our quota. Let me send that out in a newsletter to get more funding. Judge. Um, or we make statements like, I've been in full-time ministry 25 years. I'm like, listen to yourself. What do you mean? (laughs) And this body that he prayed, I pray you might be one as I and the Father are one. You just drew a line of division between full-time ministry and not. What are you saying? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest, we minister to the Lord. There is no children's ministry. There is no men's ministry. There is no man's ministry. There is not worship ministry. Doesn't exist. Not unto people. It exists unto the Lord. See, if these guys are standing here, and I love what God's doing I love what he's doing here. The eyes of the people are being stewarded into the eyes of the Lord. And, you know, I hear worship leaders say, it's my job to lead the people into worship. It's my job to lead the people into the presence of the Lord. And I always say to them, if you lead, if you capture their eyes so you can lead them into the presence, when they enter the presence, they will miss the presence because they're looking at you. You don't lead anybody into the presence of the Lord. You worship the Lord. That's what I see you doing, Jaden. It blesses my heart. You worship the presence of the Lord. And if the people want to come, they'll come. And if they don't, they don't. There's nothing you can do about that anyway. If you persuade people to worship, it's not worship. It's conformity through your eyes of what worship is. And you're not doing that, and it's beautiful. Yay, Jesus. Yay, you. I'm made manifest to the Lord. And made manifest the Lord, you know. <laughs> just imagine yourself in a, in a big conference and there's lights and there's music and everybody's worshipping. And then the power goes out and everybody stops worshipping. Why? Was he worthy to be worshipped when the electricity was on and not worthy when the electricity went off? And if we weren't worshipping when the electricity was on because we stop when the electricity goes off, were we ever really worshipping? What is worship? What is prayer? Let's have a prayer meeting. See, the institution of the church has to box it into a time slot so I can get your strength, and it becomes about the name of the institution becoming great, not the body of Christ, having the life of Christ freed within them. 
There is no such thing as a prayer meeting. The biblical instruction is pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop. Learn to abide in such a way that you are ministering to the presence of the Lord all the time. That's a prayer meeting. Life is a prayer meeting. I often say I'm learning more about worshipping the Lord as I butter peanut butter bread for my kids than I do doing this. Because I can do this in my own strength. But I, gosh, I used to think I was a good person and then I became a parent. I can't do that in my own strength. Help me, Jesus. And there's six of them. And every time I turn around, my wife's walking into our house with a homeless man under her arm or like five girls somehow stretched. And I walk home and she's lying on the bed and there's like, I've got uh, six sons and there's seven girls lying on the bed. And I'm like, help me, Jesus. And my wife was like, just find grace. It's fine. Because as a man, I come under the condemnation. If I bring it in, I'm responsible for it. I'll never forget when God brought us Zion. We got a phone call. We had four boys, and I was done, 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 done. I was over it. I was broken. It was just after I nearly died. I was under stress. I was under pressure because I was trying to do it all. And I get a phone call saying, can you take another boy? And my wife was there, and I get off the phone, and I turn to Bex, and I burst into tears. She heard the conversation, and I said, I just don't want him. Now, you've got to understand, it was us or the streets for a one-year-old. And I was confronted with my own reality that I didn't want him. I wanted him to be wanted, but I wanted someone else to want him. That's what we do all the time. Because we've been conformed to living within the strength that we perceive we have in our flesh. And I said to Bex, "I, I, I can't. I'm so done, I have nothing left. And she said, should we pray about it? And I said, no! (laughs) And we prayed about it and God said, yes. And so I said, yes, reluctantly, more on my wife's yes than my own. And I said to the Lord, okay, give me grace. He's coming tomorrow, give me grace now. And the Lord said, no. The grace for his life is attached to his life and it will walk in the door with him. See, when God calls you into something, you want him to build you so that you can step into it with confidence, but that's just a nice word for pride. He will always leave a little bit that you cannot work your way through, which is why when he puts an apostolic gift upon a person and calls him, this will hurt. Because he doesn't, he doesn't know how to do it. He can't rest in his own capacity and his own strength. He says, yes, Lord, but I don't know how. Much like Jesus said in the garden. And it's the same for your life. There's no greater value here than there is for each one of you. I could lay my hand on every single one of you and declare the same thing. He won't give you the grace to move to England in completeness. There'll be this like, ah, is it right? And you won't know until you walk into it and you're carried into it and then you see the glory of God released in it and you're in no danger of grabbing it and saying, look what I did for your kingdom. That's how it works. But we can't control that. How do you measure surrender? How do you measure my surrender and tell me that I'm doing a good job? You can't. How do I measure yours? I can't. All I can do is say, I bless you to follow your conviction with the Lord, whether it blesses me or it costs me. And I hope and I hope and I pray that you say yes. You're made manifest to the Lord. 
you're made manifest to the Lord. If you're a stay-at-home mum, as you stay-at-home mum, you're made manifest to the Lord. If you're a stay-at-home dad, as you stay-at-home dad, you are made manifest to the Lord. If you're an accountant, you are an accountant who is manifest to the Lord. See, the statement is, I've been in full-time ministry for 10 years, but we are all in full-time ministry. Unto the Lord. And if that's what we're doing, if that's who we are, there becomes this fear in our heart of, I, I, I want to throw you the ball of my life and I will watch you score for your name, for your glory, for your reality, for eternity. I will allow you to build a picture within me and loose a life within me that doesn't reflect the circumstances that you have put me in because I'm not living with my eyes on the circumstances. You have raised my eyes to this eternal thing. Therefore, put your hope in the things above. Set your eyes on the things above. The day will come when the earth and its works will pass away, be consumed by fire. The heavens will pass away with a roar and there will be new heavens and a new earth because you look to such things be diligent to be found in peace on the day of his coming. And I have never lived, listen, my life is just, it's, it's so complex. Life is more complex than it ever has been before and I am more free than I have ever been before. I understand not because I have pursued it. I haven't walked with him. He's been good enough to walk with me. I understand a river of living water that presents itself in circumstances that are anything other than ready to receive the water. And I want that for all of us. And I believe that as a community, if you are going to walk in, there is much encouragement for the road that we have walked But if we rely on the encouragement, encouragement will turn into pride. There will be no fear of the Lord. And everything that he has torn down to build something different, we will just build what we think he wants to build. And if you don't live in the fear of the Lord, it will not be. Because when the Lord is building, sometimes one meter plus one meter equals two, but other times one meter plus one meter equals 54 meters. That's the kingdom. Sometimes the Lord says, walk here, and you're like, I have no idea how it's going to bear fruit. And you just follow blindly, and it bears more beauty in the eternal reality than you could ever asked, hoped, dreamed, or imagined. And so what I'd love you to do, I don't want you to respond to me. What I'd love you to do is just respond to him. I would love you to talk to him and ask him, this, do, I, do I know the fear of the Lord? Do I want the fear of the Lord? Half of you, will, one part of who you are will say no, and one part of who you are will say yes. When the people needed to be freed from oppression, Moses led them out. He stood by the water and he put his hand over the water and he parted the water. But when it came time for the people to enter the promised land, it wasn't the leader, it wasn't Joshua that stood in the water. It was the people carrying the presence of the Lord. And it was their engaging with the heart of God that led them into the promised land. Another person, God will use another person to free you from oppression, but another person cannot help you into your promised land. That is between you and the Lord.
you and the Lord. You cannot follow someone into your promised land because your promised land and their promised land are different. Your promised land doesn't look like my promised land. It has the same substance of adoration of the king, of worship of the king, of fear of the Lord, of yielding and surrender, but it looks different. And the promised land is not the end goal. It's just the place where we arrive, where we start to contend in fear and trembling for our faith. We live out our days in the promised land. We enter the promised land in a maturity, and hopefully if we walk with him, we become mature in the land. And for that, we need the fear of the Lord. You need to be more concerned about following the Lord, more in fear of stepping against him than being controlled by man, controlled by circumstances, or controlled by the voice of your own flesh. And so, Lord, I thank you for these beautiful people. I thank you that you are building your house, that your house is not made of the things of this earth. God, I thank you that when you are on a wooden cart, you went to get off the cart because you said the creation of man will never carry my presence. If I am going to be carried, it will be by that which I have created, and the house is the person. The person is the house. And I pray for this house. I pray for every person. I pray for the beauty of of surrendering to you. Just absolute surrender. I pray that you would build a fear within each one of us, God. That means we are more in awe of you and we are more terrified of stepping out of what you are doing than we are of what people think, say or do towards us. I pray that you would build a fear within us that makes us more concerned about whether you are having your will, even if it means that we sacrifice our own. I thank you for your son that hung on a cross and modeled it. Three times, Father, take this cup, but not my will, yours be done. I thank you for the leper that approached you and said, I know you can heal me if you are willing. He recognized your power, but he sought your will. May that be the testimony of these people. Not seeking power, not seeking the blessing that the power leverages. But Father, I want to know your will. I want to know the nuance of your heart. I want to both be absolutely, completely safe and at rest and completely terrified in your presence all at the same time. And I don't know how that works, but that's what I want. God, I rebuke in Jesus' name the eyes that would seek to define success through the measurement of man. I break it and loose the approval of the Lord as the only measurement, knowing full well that the approval of the Lord can mean two different things for two different people. We rebuke a spirit of confusion. We rebuke a spirit of fear. And we loose a sound mind in the fear of the Lord. I thank you for these beautiful people. I don't know all of them, but I know you. You made them, and I know that you make beautiful things. I pray for an honor towards one another that is unprecedented in this city and in this nation. And I pray that in that honor, only you would be glorified. Let us not glorify one another. Let us honor one another and together learn to glorify you. I thank you for this time. Father, whatever you have planted by your spirit, let it grow, and whatever was not of you, toss it out and trample it underfoot. Father, for every person, minister truth to them by your spirit now 
and whatever is not for them, just, just toss it out for another time. I thank you for these beautiful people. I pray a blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.